And the series we started was called Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life. So we're at least got a couple weeks left of this series before we have our Christmas uh, service. So Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've had five lessons so far. And if my screen will cooperate here, I will show you what those are. And it's deciding to do its own thing. Well, it's really ancient wisdom today. Okay. Well, we may have to run on different... What's going on here? This has not done this before. Tech team, can you work some magic up there? No, I know you can't. This is my screen that's malfunctioning today. Well, anyways, I'm going to share with you and we'll hope the screen will catch up. We've done five lessons in this series, and the first one we talked about was being delivered. Delivered, how God has delivered us from our sins. Number two, how God provides for us. We call it provided. Number three is nourished. Number four, we looked at protected. And last week, if you remember, we talked, we spoke about equipped. Equipped. And today, again, if my screen will catch up, we're going to be talking about emboldened. If you have your Bibles, turn over to 2 Corinthians 4. While I try to do a little fiddling over here, you the word. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 to 12 is where we're going to be today. Does anyone know any good jokes? <laughs> Let's try this one more time. I'm sorry for the technical issues here. If this doesn't work, we're going to go on memories. Okay. Let's try this one more time. Are you going to cooperate now? Yes. How about that? Technology. All right, even though it looks a little bit different, we will whirl with this. We won't fiddle too much and break it. There's our lessons that we've gone through so far. And as I spoke to you today, we're going to be talking about emboldened from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, if you need a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles on our back bookshelf. You can grab those and use those for your benefit. If you are using one for the bookshelf, it's going to be page 907. 907. Well, before we get there today, do you like inspirational quotes Anyone like inspirational quotes? Put an inspirational quote in your room or in your car to remind you. Yeah, we like those inspirational quotes. They make us feel good. They encourage us. Well, you've probably never heard these before, but I'm going to give you 10 uninspirational quotes because <laughs> I like humor. And there's a point to this. I'm going to give you 10 uninspirational quotes. In fact, the way we're going to do this today is maybe these are so common, these quotes, at least the way they begin, that I'm wondering if you can sort of complete the inspirational quote for me before I sort of change it. And it'll be a little game, okay? So we'll start with number one. It's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you... That would be the inspirational way of saying it. Well, I'm gonna say it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you take someone down with you when you fall. <laughs> not so inspirational, but could be true. Uh, number two, if, if at first you don't succeed, there you go. That's the inspirational way to say it. The uninspirational way of saying it is if at first you don't succeed, life is trying to tell you something. Just give up, loser. That's not very inspirational. That hurts my feelings. How about this one? If you build it, they will... It's inspirational. Well, if you've been in my household, if you build it, they will knock it down. And it's true. And they have and they will again. How about this one? If you want something done right... Do it yourself. I'm going to say it this way. If you want something done right, what was that? Did I miss something? You did. You did. Tell the wife. Tell the wife. I don't know if I could wow. beat that. 
tell the wife. I'm going to say it this way, but this is very similar, David. If you want something done right, hire someone way smarter than you, i.e., your wife. That's right. We're having fun today. How about this one? Keep your friends close and your... What does that mean exactly? This one's going to say, keep your friends close and get real. You don't have any friends. <laughs> Anyone want to put that in their house? It's kind of sad to think about. How about this one? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know. I'm going to be a little bit more specific with mine. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know if you're going to get a cavity or diarrhea. <laughs> Can I say that from the pulpit? It's too late now, isn't it? I just said, I said it to what? To the world. I'm actually encouraged by that. How about this one? The only thing we have to fear is or being eaten alive by sharks. My twins like sharks. They, for some reason, are enamored by sharks. How about this one? Better, better to have loved and lost than to crash your plane into a mountain. It's true. It may not be inspirational, but it's true. How about this one, number nine? What doesn't kill us makes us right. Well, what doesn't kill us makes us closer to death in all reality. And lastly and not least, absence makes the heart, that's the inspirational way of saying it, the uninspirational way of saying it is absent makes the heart bitter, angry, and willing to seek revenge. That's not, see, these aren't kind. Those, are, those aren't good things to think about. But why am I sharing these things today? Because we all need boldness, don't we? Um, this world tells us that it's all about us. You can pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. You can make life what you want of it. If you dream it, you can do it. The problem is, is the Bible has a different message, doesn't it? And if you'll join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to find something that may not sound inspirational at first. But I believe if we hang on with this lesson at the end, we will be incredibly inspired, motivated, and emboldened. And that's where we're going today. So join me in 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll start in verse 7. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church. He says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, excuse me, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's where we're headed today, emboldened. We have a three-point outline. If you grab your sheets, you can follow along. Our three-point outline is this. Number one, an important perspective. Number two, a necessary process. And number three, a powerful glory. So again, we need to hang in with this lesson before at the end we find the inspiration that we need. Now, let's start with this. Let's start with an important perspective. Now, there are some amazing people in this world. Did you know that? Amazing. Truly amazing. And I was able to find a few. Um, just with a quick Google search, I was able to find some of the most amazing people in the world. A lady so big, she can pick up the Eiffel Tower with her finger. I mean, that's amazing, right? On the right, we have a guy who could drink a massive cup of Starbucks coffee. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? And in the middle, some lady kissing the old man in the mountain. <laughs> um, that's not what that is. 
But these are amazing, right? And I showed these to my children thinking that would wow them, going, man, look how big these people are. And my children immediately picked up on the fact that this is a trick. And I'm guessing most of you know that sitting here today going, that's, that's not reality. That is a trick. It is something that is a photographer trick called forced perspective. Forced perspective. What's actually happening here is actually quite simple. There is an object that is far away and there is an object that is close. And the camera angle makes it look like they're together, right? So in the first one, the Eiffel Tower is very far away and the finger is very close, making it look like she's picking it up. And the same thing is happening with the coffee cup, only reverse. The coffee cup is close. And the guy is far away. And in the middle one, we have something similar and weird going on there. Uh, forced perspective. It makes you think that what's, what's transpiring in these photos is reality when in all reality it's not at all happening. It's just a camera trick. And we kind of live in a world like that where we are often forced into our perspective. And sometimes it happens the other way. Sometimes we feel very huge. And then sometimes we have to zoom out. And we have to realize that we're not that big at all, are we? And my, my twins are very into space as well. They love talking about space and researching space. This is a picture of our Milky Way galaxy, okay? And someone has zoomed in the picture of the, of the Earth because if you look just simply at the Milky Way, you can't even see the Earth. The Earth is a speck in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is so huge, so massive, that our world that seems big to us is a tiny speck almost invisible to the naked eye. And then if you put us on that world and then zoom out to that world, we are a speck on the earth, aren't we? We are just a fraction, a small part of the earth here in Littleton, New Hampshire. So much so, you probably couldn't see us if you zoomed out and, saw, and looked at the world as a whole. So you could say today that we are a speck upon a speck. We are small, aren't we? We're small. Now, we don't feel small. We feel big. Our problems seem big. We feel strong. We feel capable. And we like feeling that way. But it's not reality. It's a forced perspective. And we need to shape our perspective today. And better yet, God needs to shape our perspective today. And this isn't to demean us. This isn't to hurt our feelings. This is to put our mind and heart in the proper perspective so that we can get the help we need from someone who is very, very big. And that's where we're going today. In Isaiah 55, the prophet Isaiah says it this way. He says, for as the heavens, or you could translate that word into space, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, speaking about God, higher than your ways and my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. Isn't that amazing? As far as the tip-top part of space is compared to the earth, so far are God's ways and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. That's just an amazing perspective to know, that our God is so big, so grand, so powerful, so almighty, and we are not. We're small. We're weak and comparatively insignificant. Paul to the church says it this way. He says, but we, verse 7, we Christians, we children of God have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You could almost do an entire study on this one verse alone and that would be a, a whole lesson right there. Paul is saying we, we have a treasure. We have a treasure. It's an amazing treasure. It's so powerful, so magnificent that this treasure, if we truly understood how powerful and amazing this treasure was, it would blow our minds. And God's done something interesting with this treasure. He's put it in jars of clay. Do you know who the jars of clay are? We are. Exactly right. We are the jars of clay. We have a treasure, 
But God has taken that treasure and put it into jars of clay so that something could be understood to this world. So we could understand the surpassing power, that word can actually be translated into beyond comprehension. The power that is beyond comprehension that God has, we would understand that it belongs to God and not to us. Why would God do it that way? Why would he make us the treasures? Why has he taken his treasure and put it into jars of clay so that he can get the glory and not us? Why can't we have the glory? Because we're nothing. We're insignificant. We're weak. Without God's love, we're temporary. And God has to do something in order to not only bless us, but to help us with that perspective so that we always know who and where to get the power. Now, you guys remember jars of clay? Um, in the 90s. And I'm dating myself there. Uh, I was in youth group in the 90s. And there was a band called Jars of Clay. Anyone remember that band, Jars of Clay? Yeah, oh my word, a lot of you. Oh, you're all old. What's that? Your, their name? Yeah, it takes that long, doesn't it? Back in the day, you just thought it was something catchy. And now you're realizing maybe there's something Bible behind it. Um, well, there was. And uh, Jars of Clay, this is the only, the only reference I had for Jars of Clay until I figured out the Bible, was this band. And it'd be interesting to go back and listen to those lyrics and see how they line up to the scripture. But no, that's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about a 90s band. We're talking about actual Jars of Clay, right? And I mean, you look at that picture, and it's, it's not that exciting, is it? And that's the point. Now, in, back in the Bible days, they would have had these in their home and would have stored flour and other resources in these jars in their home, and they wouldn't have been exciting because that's not the point of jars of clay. The point is practicality. The point is to store something and be able to put them on your shelf and have them when you need them. But basically what Paul is telling us today is if, if that is us, then we could call that a crossroads group picture. <laughs> Find yourself, if you look close, you'll find yourself. You're one of those jars, one of those pots, one of those vessels. And that's not very flattering, is it? That's not flattering that God would call me and call you a jar of clay. But it's reality, and it's actually a benefit to us if we can understand what, what Paul is saying to us today. That we are jars of clay. We are. We're not that exciting. We're not that dynamic. We're not that big. We're not that special. But we can be very practical if something is given to us. Notice it again. We have this treasure. And again, he's referring to something. The power of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. God has taken this treasure. And this treasure could refer to a couple things. It can refer to the power of God. It can refer to the gospel of God. It could refer to the Son of God. Something exciting just happened up here. And that's interesting to know, isn't it? That God has given us a treasure, and this treasure is so magnificent, so special, that he's given it to humanity. He's given it to us, mankind. Why would God do that? Why would God take such a treasure and put it in our hands? Because he loves us, and because we need it. But notice what he did. He remained true to his word by taking this treasure and putting it into jars of clay. Where probably you shouldn't put a diamond, right? Probably you shouldn't put something so powerful, so magnificent, so beautiful, so valuable. You should not store it in a jars of clay. But God does. God takes his most powerful, profound treasure and he puts it inside of the jars of clay. 
And he does it so that he could prove to the world that he is the shining one, that he is the valuable one, and we are not. Now, it's not to demean us, it's to help us. But it's also to shape our perspective so that we know that God is and we are not. And so that actually helps us understand where are we to go. And if you find this, if you read the scriptures, you will find this pattern all the way through the New Testament. In fact, all the way through the Bible where Jesus says this phrase, I am. He says it at least seven times referring to different things. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And God is telling us that all today. I am. I am and you are not. But he's also saying something else to us today. You have access to all these things. You have access to the bread. You have access to the light. You have access to the sheepfold. You have access to the shepherd. You have access to life itself. You have access to the way to God. And you have access to the true vine. Isn't that beautiful to know that God has given us access to all the treasures of himself simply by sending Jesus who... And I didn't select this because of the Advent season. The Spirit just gave us this passage today, but this goes well with the Advent season, doesn't it? Because when Christmas came, when the child came, he brought all that treasure to the earth, all of it. And not only was the treasure going to dwell with us, eventually it was going to find itself in the center of our core, in our hearts, in our souls. And that treasure was going to be in jars of clay, just like Paul is referring to. Now, I've, I've mentioned this before. My favorite verse, if you had to pin me down, to one favorite verse in the entire Bible, it would be Acts 4.13. I believe at the end of my time here on the earth and I have to be laid in the ground, I would want this to be the verse that would be either in my memorial service or on on the grave itself, Acts 4.13. I just love what it says. Notice what it says. Now this is right after Paul and John, Peter and John, had had shared an amazing sermon, okay? And in the audience are a whole bunch of Pharisees, really learned men, okay? Scholars. And they're sitting there while Peter and John are giving this eloquent, powerful sermon. And in Acts 4.13, this is what it says, referring to that situation. It says, now when they saw, notice it, the boldness of Peter and John. Now who were Peter and John originally? What were they as their trade? Fishermen. Nothing special. Fishermen. That would have been a common laborer back in the day. Peter and John were not special. But notice when they see the boldness of Peter and John giving this sermon and proclaiming the works of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, they notice the boldness. They can't but notice the boldness. It's so profound, so in their face, that they perceived that they must have been special men. Does it say that? They must have been highly educated. They must have been stronger than they thought they were. No, that's not what it says. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Which, again, isn't very flattering. Going, well, they're really bold, but they're uneducated. They're common. They're nothing special. But notice how they act. They are astonished. And they come to one conclusion. It can't be Peter and John that we're hearing today. They recognize they must have been with Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful verse? They recognize the boldness. They come to a conclusion that Peter and John aren't capable of this kind of boldness on their own. And then they are astonished and they recognize that Peter and John must have the treasure in their jars of clay. They must have been with Jesus. And I love that verse. Because I think at the end of the day, that can be said of all of us, isn't it? 
Now, we want to be educated. We don't want to be thought of as common. We want to ascend in this life and for people to think highly of us. But is that an advantage? You could ask that question, spiritually speaking. To ascend high in this life, do we ascend spiritually? I don't know. Peter and John didn't do it that way. Peter and John spent all of their time around Jesus, and they gained this incredible boldness and confidence. So much so, the world took notice. And the testimony was very clear. They must have been near Jesus. How else could they be what they are today? And I love that. And I think that's exactly the spirit of what Paul is saying. But we, children of God, Christians, have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that's what we're trying to do here at Crossroads Church. We are trying to glorify the one who has given us all things. And that is God himself. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. To find any glory within ourselves is forced perspective. It's not right. It's not true. That's an important perspective. Let's now go to a necessary process. Now, there's two types of people in this world, okay? There really are. Two types of people. Now, there are people that look at a screen like this and immediately feel a little bit anxious, a little bit overwhelmed, and I am that person, okay? And maybe for a couple reasons. Maybe you're a little OCD, like I think I am a little bit, and maybe you're just not good at putting things together. And so you look at a picture like this and you get overwhelmed going, boy, I hope he doesn't ask me to do something like that. I, when, when people put furniture pieces before me, I just want to run away because I don't know what I'm doing. But there's other people in the world, when they see stuff like this, they get really excited. You know, they love putting things together. Like my son Haddon is that kind of person. My wife is that kind of person, thankfully. Going back to David back there, when I need something done, I just ask Janine. And she knows what to do. And... That's, that's interesting that there's two types of people, right? Some people love a process and some people get bothered and anxious by a process. Now, if I gave Janine these two things and gave her a whole day to do them, she would be thrilled. She really would. That's the kind of thing Janine likes to do. She likes to put puzzles together and put things together. But I would be stressed out because the process stresses me out. Now, when we first moved to Michigan, before I show the next screen, we, uh, we, we did campus ministry. We started a ministry on secular campuses to young adults to help them understand the gospel and the word of God. And when we went there, we partnered with a school called Eastern Michigan University. It's right down the road from Ann Arbor, which is where the University of Michigan is. And so these two schools are right next to each other, but one is kind of the big brother and one is kind of the little brother. Eastern Michigan University is that little brother. And when we went there, and I didn't know much about Eastern Michigan University, so we would, we would go to their football games and their basketball games, and it didn't take me long to realize they weren't good. Um, they weren't good at all. In fact, they had this slogan that they used the whole season called Embrace the Process. You could tell where they were going with that. They were basically telling the community, we know we're bad, um, we understand we're really bad, but uh, there's a process here, and we're going to ask you to trust the process. In fact, if you drove on the road, there was a billboard with that kind of that same picture that you see up there on the left. Not the right, that would be weird. Um, but the picture on the left, and it said, Eastern Michigan University, embrace the process. And then it said, tickets as low as $3. <laughs> Man, I wish I had taken a picture of that billboard because I loved that billboard. Every time I, I drove by that billboard, I just had to laugh. You know what their record was that year? Eastern Michigan University, they played 12 games. Do you know what their record was? 0 and 12. Now that's a lot of process. That's a lot of embracing they're asking us to do. 
But sometimes process takes a while, doesn't it? Now, I don't recommend that you do this with the Word of God, okay? This is, this is a controlled environment, so don't do this with God's Word, okay? God's Word is, is meant to be as it is. Don't tamper with the Word of God. So this is just for perspective for us today. But what if we took this passage in verse 8 and 9 and we just highlighted one side of it? Do you see how depressing it gets? If 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9 said, we are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Isn't that depressing? If, if that's what we are as Christians, and that's what Paul's telling us today, that is a very depressing thought to have. So depressing, you might consider leaving. You might say, well, that's not for me. That's not what I'm looking for in this life. And sadly, this is what some people think of Christianity, is that Christians are the biggest losers of all time because there's been martyrs. And persecution, and persecution is raging on in this world right now all across this globe against Christians. And they are persecuted. And we are perplexed. And we are, every single day, attacked by the enemy. And if that's where things ended for Christianity, then I wouldn't encourage anyone to join, anyone to give their lives to it. And neither would Paul, and neither would God. Because that's not how our God works. That it's just bad, it's just hard, it's just dangerous, and at the end you die, and you're forgotten. Is that Christianity? No, of course that's not Christianity. But sometimes we're led to believe. But if you look at this verse in the pure context of what it says, notice what it says now. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. The all reality is that Christianity is hard. It is a narrow path following Jesus Christ. It does require self-sacrifice. But is that the last chapter of Christianity? We just give and we suffer and we bleed and we die and, and that's it? No, of course not. And that's not what Paul is saying today either. There are two promises in Scripture and I decided to mush them together because I thought it would be a very unique perspective of how we understand this thing called Christianity. Now, I don't know if you can read that, but in Acts 14, 22, the apostle says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? We, we don't get to heaven without having gone through many trials and tribulations. Every Christian will have that testimony in heaven. Boy, I faced a lot of hardship. I had a lot of enemies. I had a lot of different people and trials in my life that required a lot of prayer and a lot of heartache. And that's my story, and that's your story. We'll all share those stories in heaven. But you know what we'll also share? What it says in Joshua 1.5 and Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Won't we also share that? Boy, I had a lot of tribulations. I had a lot of trials. But you know what? Guess who was with me every step of the way? God. The Lord Jesus was with me every step of the way. His promise held true. If he wasn't there, I'm not here today. I don't overcome those tribulations and trials on my own. So the two things are both true. We do have a lot of trials and tribulations, but we do have the presence of the Almighty God with us, and that's what Paul's telling us today. And it's to encourage us, to motivate us. And I think this is a good picture for what it looks like in Christianity. This is a bent tree. But you notice what it's not? It's not fractured. There's no break in that tree. And that tree is producing abundant leaves and foliage for the eye. 
That oftentimes is how Christianity feels in this life, is that we're bent. Life is hard. It's costly. When you follow Jesus Christ, you get less friends. You get more hardships, more trials. Things become more intense. And your life gets a little bit more bent than it used to, or at least appears that it does. But you also know what happens? Your life gets more fruitful than it ever could have been on your own because you have God with you every step of the way. And the tree will not break. That was never the intention of God, for, uh, for him to put us under so much stress and so much pressure that we actually break and, and fracture and die. God loves us better than that. But again, if you're, if you're casual with this passage, you can kind of see that, going, I don't know if this is the loving God I really want to sign up with, because in 2 Corinthians 4.10, it says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ. Now, if I took that verse out to the world, out to the community, do you think I'd get a lot of converts? Anyone willing to carry the body of death of Jesus in their life? Anyone? Let's sign up today. But that's true, isn't it? We are carrying in body the death of Jesus Christ every single day. That sacrifice not only motivates us to show further sacrifice, but we're reminded that Jesus' life on this earth ended hard, didn't it? It ended badly. It was not the glorified death a king should have had, a king deserved. He was hung on a cross and crucified. And if that's where the story ended, all of us should question this thing called Christianity. But we know three days later, up from the grave, he arose. Now, I need to poke a little fun. My sister, I wish she was in the audience today, because my sister, maybe you guys have heard this song, this hymn called So Send I You. Has anyone heard this hymn before? Oh, not, not too many. Maybe one or two. Back in the day, um, this is a hymn that you would have sung to those who are seeking to give their lives to missions work. And we sang this hymn growing up, and the lyrics of this hymn are a little bit... Um, Depressing? Uh, my sister used to sound to sort of poke fun at the song, and I, I think the song is probably a little bit better than it sounds. But the first verse kind of goes like this. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. Anyone want to join? Who's ready to give their lives to missions work? You're going to be unloved, unpaid, unknown, unsought. You're going to be alone, suffering on your own. I, I think, again, the writer of this hymn probably intended something better to come across than that because that's not the picture of Christianity that I know. It's not. Is there hardship? Absolutely, 100%. Is my life more difficult now that I follow Jesus Christ? Without question. And guess what also is higher? My joy. My security. The fruit and the good things coming out of my life. My hope is higher. And I think we need to be careful about how we spin this perspective in our mind so that we come out the proper way. We don't need to go too far in either direction. Christianity does require suffering. It does require sacrifice. But is it the most joyful thing you could possibly have? I would absolutely give my life saying yes. Because I've never experienced such joy. <laughs> but sometimes in, you hear this, right? I mean, you guys remember the old classic... Uh, character Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He was always the one going, oh, I lost my tail. I think it's going to rain today. Um, always the Debbie Downer, no matter what was going on in Pooh's life, you know, Eeyore tried to bring the spirit down. And I, I kind of grew up in this Christianity where it was like, we all have our crosses to bear. It's going to be sad and sacrificed for the remainder of our life. Just get used to it. 
God loves us, but we'll never see his love until the end. So just suffer now for Jesus. (laughs) Maybe that's why I struggled. I didn't really want to sign up to that version of Christianity. But I think my perspective was wrong, and I can't blame those who were, who were there possibly trying to share something with me because maybe that's what I wanted to see. Maybe I wanted to see the hard part of Christianity so that I could say, I'm not doing this. I don't want this. I will do whatever I have to do to not go to hell, but at the end of the day, I'm going to live my own life, chase my own dreams. I am not desiring sacrifice and suffering in my life. And I don't think you are as either. Unless there's a tremendous payoff, right? Unless there's a tremendous reward behind that suffering. And you would even say that that's true about mankind. Mankind is willing to suffer and sacrifice if there's a tremendous reward and payoff for that sacrifice. And that is where Paul is taking us today because notice what he says in verse 10. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, which we are. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Don't you love there's two sides to that coin? That Jesus did die. Jesus did suffer. Jesus did bleed. Jesus was denied. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was rejected. And then Philippians 2 says he is the name that is above every name, that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we follow Jesus Christ, guess what we get? We get it all. We get the suffering. We get the glory. We get the cross. We get the crown. And Paul is trying to highlight this to say, Christians, I know it's hard. If Paul is writing this letter, nobody knew more than Paul that following Jesus Christ was difficult. Nobody knew that because he's often writing letters from prison, from a dungeon, trying to encourage the church to say, listen, if my spirits are still high and I'm in dungeon, then yours can be as well. And I think that's the mentality of what he's writing to these Corinthians. And this is the beauty of Christianity. In fact, this is the beauty of baptism. If any of you have been baptized, you understand this. JP, you were baptized not that long ago. And I was remembering this as I baptized JP, is that when you baptize someone, you lower them in the water, and that's, that's a symbol of death. Death to sin, death to self, death to the old. You put them into the water to symbolize death, but you know what you do right after that? You bring them out of the water. And it symbolizes life. It symbolizes new life, regeneration, new birth, new hope, new love, new peace. And you come out of that grave and you say, now I'm alive again with God. And my God has a mission for me to do. And yes, it's going to require sacrifice just like my Lord's did. But on the other side is a tremendous weight of glory. And every single Christian has understood that. So Paul says, always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And I love that perspective. Because right now, We are experiencing what can only be called death. And the longer we live, it seems the harder things get. The more suffering we encounter, the more enemies are produced, the more cost we have to pay. But what's behind that death? Life with Jesus. Eternal life with our God. And Paul wants to encourage us today. 
So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, another passage to the same church. He says, this is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. Paul, you take pleasure in being weak? Paul, you take pleasure in being weak? You're, you'd like to tell people how weak you are? Hey, guys, I'm really weak. You think you're weak. Wait till you see here. Wait till you hear about my weakness. I'm really a weakling. And who does that, Paul? Paul says, I take pleasure in my weaknesses. And the insults. The insults too, Paul? So people insult you, find pleasure from that? Sure I do. Oh, and the hardships. I love, I love me a good hardship. Boy, if I could really be persecuted, that's where things would really go well with me. And troubles that I suffer for Christ. Paul, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? And then he says this, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. How can that be, Paul? By weakness, you gain strength. By hardships, you gain strength. By persecutions, your life gets better. Yes, that's true. Because guess what happens when I'm persecuted? Guess what happens when I'm weak? Who do I seek out? The one who is strong. And when I seek out the one who is strong and he loves me tremendously, he gives me that strength. Come on. Come on now. I'm really testing this technology today. Oh, there we go. That was going to be so worth it. Because Paul was not a strong man in the flesh. He was not someone that you would have looked up to. He was not, just like John and Paul, John and Peter, they were fishermen. They weren't someone you would have desired to model their life. Paul said, I am a weakling. But he doesn't look like a weakling. Paul, you're strong. You endure much suffering, much persecution. You were dragged through the streets. You were shipwrecked. You were flogged. You were beaten with rods. You were put into a dungeon and forgotten, Paul. That's the weakest resume I've ever heard. And yet Paul continued and endured and kept writing and kept teaching and kept proclaiming. How did he do that? Because his weakness led to the strength of the Almighty God. Because God supported him. God gave him what he needed. John the Baptist also knew this. And I believe it's John chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist says, He must increase and I must decrease. I must go down so that he can go up in my life. Because when I'm weak, that's when I'm truly strong. The more of me that gets out of the way, the more that is replaced by him, the stronger I become. The more equipped I am, the bigger the foe that I can take down. So I should go down so that he can go up. Paul said, I should make myself weak so that I can be strong. An important perspective, a necessary process. Of course, we don't end there. We end on a powerful glory because that's the whole message of Christianity. Now, this is often how people think our lives go as parents. Um, when they hear we have a lot of little kids, in fact, we have eight kids. I, I said this to a woman the other day in the community, and she just goes, she like sighed for me. She goes, oh, you must have a lot of kids because there was a lot of stuff on the counter that I was buying. And I go, yeah, I have eight kids. She goes, oh. <laughs> Whew. You know, almost was like feeling the pain for me going, you have eight kids? Like she wanted to pull her hair out right then just thinking about it. <laughs> and she, I, I think she was picturing something like this at home going, well, you, I, I don't envy you guys. You guys just must go home, go home and really hate life and really just suffer all the time. And, and I'm, I'm always, I think, a little bit disarming because I'm always joyful about the fact that I've eight kids. Because this picture is true. <laughs> okay? Just like we said before about Christianity being hard, I'm not here to lie to anybody. Okay? No, neither is Paul, neither is God. We're not here to tell you that Christianity is all roses. Neither is parenting. And if you're a parent and you have young kids, that is right on the money, isn't it? 
right on the money. Sometimes. Right? Not all the time. Sometimes, because it often looks like this in our home, too. If you walked into our home and there was no warning, and if you were able to spend a day or a week with our family, you would see some stress. You would see some hardships. But you'd also see a tremendous amount of joy and love and happiness in our family because kids offer us joy. Kids offer me joy more than any other hobby I've found in this world. I love being around my kids. I love spending time with kids. And it's a true blessing to my soul. But is it hard? Yes, it's hard. Does it bring pain and suffering? Absolutely. I had some today and I'll have some tomorrow. But it's also a tremendous amount of joy and so is following Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 11, for we who live, who are alive, and you have to ask that question today. Are you alive in Jesus? Have you turned to Jesus with your life? Have you realized, like we've all realized in this room, I'm actually pretty weak. I'm actually pretty insignificant. In fact, I'm a sinner. And if I'm left to myself, I'm in very big trouble. So I need someone capable. I need someone strong. I need someone who's willing to save me. And for those who have said that and believe that, you have turned to Jesus and you found life. And then Paul says, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. There it is. Okay, you're alive? Now go die. You're alive? You got life in Jesus Christ? Okay, go out there and suffer. Really? I mean, that's part of the message of Christianity. Now that you're alive, take your cross and follow Jesus. Right? That's what we're told in the scriptures. You got eternal life? Now go suffer. But is it for suffering sick? Is it for loss? Is it for pain and hardship? No, that's not the point of it. The point of it is that so we can go the same path that Jesus went and experience all the things that he experienced, both the hard and the unbelievably glorifying. Because following Jesus does require some death. It does. It requires death to your sin, death to yourself, death to your dreams, death to your agenda. None of those things can stay when you follow Jesus Christ. You have to take them and hand them over to God and say, God, these used to be the things I live for, and now I'm going to give them over to you, and you're going to give me back what you want me to live for. And that's when he says, take up your cross and follow Jesus. But that's death. God, I don't want death. I came to you for life and life abundantly and life forevermore. And that's when Jesus says, well, that's how I got there. I marched up the hill of Calvary with my cross. And now I'm alive. I'm alive forevermore. I have the name that is above every name. I'm exalted forever in the kingdom of God. But the way that I got there is by marching up Calvary with my cross. And that's the part we don't like to hear. We want the life without the death. But they're a package deal. And Jesus is the one who told us this. Out of his own mouth, he says, whoever wishes to save his life. Because that's an option. You could try to spare your life. You could try to live for only things that are life now. You can try to live for happiness and pleasure and gratification and rewards and treasures and happy people and memories and laughs. You can live for it all now. There's only one problem. Is that for those who wish to save their life, notice what Jesus says. He's going to lose it. And he's going to lose it all. All his happiness, all his memories, all his treasures. If he doesn't have the true life in Jesus Christ, one day he will suffer loss and will be on such a grand scale that there will only be loss. Only sadness, only suffering forevermore. But 
Whoever loses his life for my sake, notice what he will do. He will find it. He will find real joy. He will find true happiness. He will find true security by handing over this life now that seems big to us now, but one day when you zoom out and you look at the grand scope of eternity and we have this little fraction of time to live for pleasures and happiness, we're going to go, wow, what a great trade I made. I traded that for this? And that's where we're going to realize it was an investment that God was calling us to. It was the best bargain you could ever find to trade some stuff now for treasures forevermore. Jesus understood that. He came down to the earth to suffer, to bleed, and to die. And now he's reaping all the glory of that pathway. So in verse 11, it says, We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, another so that, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's the part we like, right? If we can isolate that part and just get that last half of verse 11, that would be a wonderful life passage. But when you include it all, you realize that death following Jesus leads to the best possible existence. So that his life, and I I want you to imagine what Jesus experiences right now in heaven. There's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no enemies. There's no gloom. There's no clock ticking. It's just happiness and joy and glory forevermore. And that's what he wants to give us. But in order to find the life, we also got to go the way that he went. And one day we will. According to Scripture, according to the promise of Scripture, in Isaiah 55, it says, One day our sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. And I really believe that, guys. Because I was trying to chase joy and gladness in my life. And guess what? I was full of grief, loss, sadness, separation. And then one day I started to realize Jesus is the life giver. I better learn from him where life is. And that's when he said to me, Todd, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to give you eternal life. And then I'm going to give you a cross to carry And that's the day I started to realize that the cross was the life. The cross led to the life. The sadness and the suffering led to the joy and to the gladness. So Paul ends by saying, so death is at work in us, but life in you. In fact, Paul's whole mission was to suffer and die so that the church could be benefited. Doesn't that remind you of somebody? Doesn't that remind you of Jesus? Jesus' whole mission was to suffer and sacrifice so that his people could have life. Paul gave himself to that mission. And guess what this is supposed to do? This is supposed to embolden us. There was someone who really believed this, and we're going to end on this story today, and it's a classic story. But Jesus Christ is the one we should think about today. In 1 John 2.25, it says, This is the promise which he himself made to us. Notice it. Eternal life. I'm sure you guys all know the story of Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. It comes from chapter 6 of Daniel. And I'm going to read this like I've done in the past couple weeks. And we're going to end this passage. And I want you to notice a couple things. Death, life, and boldness. Because they're all here in this story. Okay? Now let's just run through this narrative a little bit. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it said, It pleased Darius, who was the king at the time, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one of them. 
to whom the satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now things start very good for Daniel. He's promoted. He's promoted to the highest above the high, the, the leader of all leaders. Daniel gets the highest position underneath the king. The high officials and the satraps don't like this though. They're jealous of Daniel. So the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But notice it. They could not find, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or no fault was in Daniel. It's a word we call blameless. Daniel wasn't perfect. It doesn't mean without error. It means without charge, without stain, without character flaw, that they could find in Daniel to use against Daniel to bring his position down. They were unable to find that with Daniel because the man was blameless. He walked with God. He followed God all his life. And so therefore, there was no dirt to find on Daniel that they could use to take Daniel down. And that was frustrating for these people because they wanted to hurt Daniel. So they said in verse 5, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Whoa. You guys ever heard of the word connive? My mom used to say this all the time. She used to say to me and Christy and Travis that we were conniving. You guys remember that? <laughs> we would come up with some plan that we had to have done and we would, we would work the angles so that my parents realized it was a good decision and, and let us do it. And she, my parents would often say to us, you are conniving right now which meant you are manipulating the situation to work it out for your benefit. Well, that's what these people are doing. The satraps and the magistrates are trying to connive in order to get Daniel because they can't get him according to his own mess. So they're going to have to make up a law. So they say in verse 6, these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, Oh, Darius, live forever. We love you, king. You're the best king of all time. They're conniving, and they want something to be done from the king. So all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, and the governors all, I should say all agreed, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever, notice it, makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O Darius, shall be cast into the den of lions. Wow. So now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. You sign it today, it is law, and there's nothing Daniel can do to get out of it. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. The plan worked. They're going to take Daniel down. It worked. And this is a hasty move by King Darius. King Darius didn't think long enough about this plan because he loves Daniel. He really does. He really respects Daniel. And if he thought for a moment, why are they rushing this law so fast? What is the point these people are trying to make? He could have thought for a moment, maybe there's something evil happening here. But he was hasty. And he signed the document. And now Daniel was in a fix. And in verse 10 it says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house and wept bitterly. Is that what it says? He went to his house and renounced his God. Nope. When he knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Do you notice something there? How is he so bold? I mean, you know that's going to get you in hot water, Daniel. Why not 
keep the windows closed, right? I mean, put a shadow or something, put a, put a blanket over your head, do something. You're going to pray right out in the open with the windows open? You know you're going to get caught, Daniel. He didn't care, did he? And notice he didn't change his behavior. He didn't like, this isn't to stick it to them, nor is it to cower in fear. He does exactly as he had done before. He is steadfast, immovable. As he had done, so he continues to do because he's not afraid. Now we fast forward a little bit to verse 15. These satraps, these connivers, came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Remember? Remember the law, king. We made a rule and the rule stands no matter what. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Death. We go from boldness to death. Daniel is cast into the den of lions for praying to his God. That is not how the story is supposed to go, Daniel. Loves you, God. Daniel serves you, God. Why not stand up to the people that are trying to connive and stand in the way of that law? Daniel is actually thrown into the den. And now he's in a pickle, isn't he? In fact, so is King Darius. King Darius is now in a pickle because, again, he loves Daniel. And he has, he has no way out of this because he's the one that signed the injunction in the law. So he has to throw Daniel into the den of lions, and Daniel has to be thrown into the den of lions. And now we're just hoping something amazing takes place. Well, in verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste. He's a hasty guy, isn't he? He went in haste to the den of lions. I mean, he wakes up right away and runs to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, if he hears crickets or the sounds of really satisfied lions, um, that's going to be awkward. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found to be blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. God makes a covenant with Daniel. God makes a covenant with us that if we follow Jesus Christ, will we be broken? Will we be crushed? Will we be condemned? Will, will Satan be able to destroy us because that's what he wants. He wants to be able to come in and rip us away from God, destroy our souls, and then laugh at us for all eternity. Can he do that? No. And the answer is the same that Daniel found, is God keeps his covenant. That if you go the way that God orders you to go, you will find God in your corner. And that's exactly what Daniel found. In verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and no... Notice that no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I think when we get to the other side, as some of us have already, I don't think there's going to be a bunch of wounds and scars. I think there's going to be too much glory. Too much brilliance. Too much reward. Too much happiness for us to go, boy, that really hurt on the other side. God, what were you doing? It was really severe. I think on the other side, it's going to be like, was I hurt at all? Did that even hurt? I don't even remember the pain. What was the pain like? There was pain? Because I don't remember it. Because the glory is so much better than the pain. 
What's the point of this lesson today? If we have Jesus, and that, that is an if, and I put that in capitalized because I can't answer that for you. I can't. I can't look into your soul and say, yes, they have life. Only you and God know that. Have you turned to Jesus with your soul from, from your sins and said to Jesus, Jesus, I'm not. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. And I need someone to heal me and to cleanse me and to save me. And if you have Jesus, then you have found life. And it's life forevermore. And if so, that should embolden us to do big things for God. Don't you want to do big things for God? I do. Back in the day, I didn't. I wanted to do small things for God and just get by with a passing score. And now that I'm alive and I realize where the joy is, I want to do big things for God. And I'm going to encourage us this week, this season, to go out and do big things for God. Things like Daniel. Remember that song, Dare to be a Daniel? Remember that? Dare to be a Daniel. Like, go out and live Daniel-like lives. Don't be scared of the enemy. Don't be terrified of what the enemy is going to do to you. Stand up to the enemy. Go forward and know that you have a God standing in your corner, just like Jesus did, just like Daniel did, just like Paul did. And the covenant is true and real. And if we believe that, then we will too be emboldened. And I think this world needs to see people similar to what is said in Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they recognized they must have been with Jesus. It's not about our glory. It's not about our strength. It's not about our happiness. It's about the glory of the King. And right now in this season, I think we have a beautiful opportunity to go out and share the glory of the King. And it will require some sacrifice. It will require some suffering. But on the other side is so much glory it will make the pain and the suffering as if they never happened at all. Therefore, I believe we can find the same boldness that Daniel found. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this plan. We could not have come up with this plan. Father, it blows our minds. This is not how the world thinks. That in order to suffer, or in order to gain, Father, we must suffer. In order to go up, we must go down. In order to find life, we have to find some death now. But Father, remind us of the message of Jesus and the message of Paul, the message of Daniel, that every step of the way you will be there. You will be supporting us, encouraging us, strengthening us, watching over us, keeping your covenant perfectly without fail so that we can do the kinds of things that Christians are expected to do, boldly live for Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you for including us in that plan. Remind everyone this Christmas season that there is a king out there and he is worthy to be served. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.